Joe was dying. For years, he had lived with resentment and bitterness with Bill, his former best friend. They hadn't spoken in years, in fact. And so wanting to make peace before his death, Joe asked Bill to come in and see him. And Bill was a little surprised to get the phone call, but he came anyways. And Joe told Bill that he was afraid to go into eternity with all of these hard feelings between them. And so Joe very reluctantly and with great effort apologized for all the wrong that he had said and all the wrong that he had done. He also said to Bill that he forgave him for all of the wrong that he said, all the wrong that he had done. It was a great moment of forgiveness in what was certainly Bill's final hours. And all seemed fine until Bill decided to get up and leave. And just as he reached the door, Joe called back to him, but remember, if I get out of this bed and I get better, none of this counts. Our summer-long family reunion through the book of Genesis ends here with this story of forgiveness between Joseph and his brothers. Remember the offense, these brothers unable to cope with their jealousy related to their father Jacob's blatant favoritism of their other brother Joseph, decide to sell him into slavery in Egypt. And they lie to Jacob and tell him that Joseph was killed in a tragic accident by some wild animal. And Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt. These 11 brothers have no idea what happens to him. Jacob thinks that he's dead. But Joseph's story doesn't end there, though. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He has this meteoric rise to power in Egypt by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. Dreams that predict seven years of abundant harvest, followed by seven years of extreme drought. And Joseph's plan, he tells Pharaoh, is to store away 20% of the grain each year during the abundant years, so that way when the famine does arrive, there is enough food for the people. And when the famine does come, there is food in Egypt. The people don't starve because of Joseph's interpretation of this dream and his pragmatic planning. But the famine proves to be severe, not only in Egypt, but throughout other countries in that part of the world, including Canaan, modern-day Palestine and Israel, the place where Joseph came from, the place where his father and his brothers still live. Rachel, by this point, Joseph's mother, has passed away. And they, too, are affected by this famine. And Jacob has heard reports that food is available for sale in Egypt. And so he says to his 11 sons, go to Egypt and purchase the food so that we will not starve. None of them know that Joseph is the reason why there is bread. The brothers have no idea that it's the one that they sold into slavery in Egypt who has made their survival possible. Jacob, who after all of these years, I'm sure, still grieves for the son that he lost, his favorite son, has no idea that it's Joseph that he's sending them to. And so when these 11 sons of Jacob show up, they come face to face with Joseph and they bow to the ground. But the brothers don't recognize that it's Joseph. Remember way back when Joseph was with his family, he had dreams about how someday all of his siblings and his parents would bow down to him as their ruler. And here these brothers are unwittingly fulfilling that dream, but they don't know it. All they see is this Egyptian ruler. And to add some nice little drama to the story, because by now we should expect that there's always going to be a nice little level of drama in the book of Genesis. To add some nice drama to the story, Joseph 
recognizes them. And as you can imagine, he has some unresolved feelings from what these brothers did to him all of those years ago. Joseph is a man of great and growing wealth and power. He has found great success despite the circumstances he went through. But seeing these brothers who wished him dead, who sold him into slavery in Egypt, it brings up some unresolved feelings because how could it not? And so Joseph uses his power and his position and starts interrogating his brothers. Why have you come here for bread, he asks. Have you come here to spy on us? And they plead with him saying, no, we've only come to buy bread. We are honest men. But in the process of their interrogation, they let it slip that there is another brother of theirs, one that Joseph does not know about, one that was born that after Joseph went off to Egypt, a son named Benjamin, the last son of Jacob and Rachel. And as you can imagine, they are incredibly protective of Benjamin. It doesn't take much for us to understand why. So after losing Joseph, they are going to protect Benjamin at all costs. And Joseph comes across as kind of harsh in this interaction with his brothers. But there's a lingering question on his mind and on our minds as the people who are reading this story. Have these brothers changed? Or are they still the same people who sold Joseph into slavery all of those years ago? And so Joseph says, you can have bread for now, but if you are indeed honest men, if you come back to Egypt and want more bread, then you have to bring Benjamin with you. And so it takes some convincing of Jacob, but they do allow, he does allow Benjamin to come back with them. And then there is some more trickery, because remember, this is a family that loves to play tricks on each other, and not in a good-natured sense either. So Joseph is trying to see if his brothers have changed. And so he says to one of his servants, take one of my silver cups and place it in the bag of grain that Benjamin is going to take back to Canaan. In a sense, Joseph is planting evidence on Benjamin, so that way he can accuse him of stealing. And so then when he does level that accusation, he can say to Benjamin, you are going to be a slave in Egypt. He wants to see how his brothers react. And so when it does happen, one of the other brothers, Judah, says, take me in his place. Don't let my father Jacob suffer another loss like this. He is old, and if this happens, this will certainly kill him. And that's when Joseph breaks down. He starts weeping. He weeps so loudly, it says in the text, that his entire household heard him. And he finally reveals his identity to his brothers. I'm sure it was incredibly shocking. He, he kisses his brothers. They weep together, and they, and they reunite together. And he says, bring my father back here. And so Jacob and his entire household come and live in Egypt Father and son finally reunited. Jacob, the son that he thought was certainly dead, reuniting with him after all of these years. There's some sense of closure. There is some sense of love. And there's also a sense that that Jacob doesn't hold the wrong that his other sons did against Joseph, against them. And that's where Jacob spends the rest of his days. He lives the rest of his days in Egypt where he dies. And his death causes grief not only among his family, but it seems like he had made an impact on the other Egyptians as well. They also mourn when Jacob dies. 
But there is a growing fear among these other brothers, these sons of Jacob and his other wife, Leah. What if now that dad is gone, they say to each other. Joseph still bears a grudge against us. He decides that it's time to exact a little payback. It's time for some revenge. The only thing that was holding him back was the fact that Jacob was still around. And they say to Joseph, hey, dad told us before he died that he wants you to forgive us for all the things we did way back when we sold you as a slave in Egypt. Now, there's no way of knowing based off of what's in the text. If Jacob actually did say this to his sons, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. There's really no way for us to know. But as they speak to Joseph, Joseph once again begins to weep. And his brothers fall down in front of him and say, we are here as your slaves. Joseph has heard that before, hasn't he? After he sold the bread to the Egyptians and they gave him all of their money, after they gave him all of their livestock and their land and their very lives, they said, we are here as the slaves of Pharaoh, and and Joseph accepts. But now here are his brothers placing themselves in front of him, and, and Joseph could exact his revenge, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He could balance the scales of justice and enslave his brothers. No one could blame Joseph for doing that. We know it's not beneath Joseph to enslave people as he created widespread serfdom across all of Egypt. But Joseph, at the end of Genesis, chooses instead to forgive. He forgives his brothers for their actions. At the end of our family reunion, there is forgiveness and there is reconciliation. There has been a lot of hurt and a lot of pain as we have journeyed through these families in the book of Genesis. Our, fr- our family reunion has certainly been messy and dysfunctional. The families of Genesis have been stuck in this tragic loop where they are constantly hurting and harming and, and abusing each other. I'm sort of amazed and terrified all at the same time by black holes that exist in outer space. There's a lot that we don't know about them still, but a black hole is a region in space that exists when a, when a star collapses and the, the gravitational pull is so strong that if you get to a certain point in it, Even light can't escape. They're kind of terrifying and amazing all at the same time. The families of Genesis are sort of stuck in this emotional black hole. They are sucked into this constant cycle of injury and pain. And if someone doesn't break that cycle, they're going to get sucked in far enough where they can't escape. But Joseph here at the end of Genesis is the one who breaks the cycle the one who offers escape from this tragic loop, this emotional black hole. And he does it by offering forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the quintessential Christian practices. In the Gospels, when Jesus' disciples ask him how often they should forgive, they say to Jesus, how about seven times? And they think that they're being extra generous because the rabbis at the time said you only had to forgive someone who wronged you three times. And Here the disciples are offering more than twice the amount of forgiveness. But Jesus says to them, you should not forgive seven times. No, there's a translation question here. It's either 77 times or 70 times seven. And the point is not that we should get a tally sheet out and keep track of how often we are forgiving somebody. But the point is, is that there should be no end to our forgiveness. 
It's all well and good. We all want to be forgiving people. We want to be able to forgive now and not wait till the end of our lives to amend all of the wrongs that have been done. The problem is, is that forgiveness proves to be rather difficult in reality. And to make matters even more difficult, we hear about those grand and dramatic stories of forgiveness. They're, we can find those in the Bible from time to time. There's the, the story of Joseph and his brothers that we just read, or there's Esau and Jacob earlier in Genesis forgiving each other after their 20-year uh, absence from each other's lives. There's even Jesus on the cross praying for his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But we also find them, these dramatic stories of forgiveness, in the news cycle from time to time. When John Paul II was shot and injured, he showed up at the jail cell of his would-be assassin and he offered this public display of forgiveness. Or Nelson Mandela, after 27 years as a political prisoner, offered forgiveness to those who treated him unjustly. Or way back in 2006, when a community, community of the Amish forgave a man who had killed several of their children in a shooting in a one-room schoolhouse. And they not only forgave him, even though he had taken his own life, they also looked after his mother to make sure that she was cared for. There are books written about that. There are movies made about that story. These are powerful examples of forgiveness. These are beautiful stories. But they can also leave us thinking that forgiveness is sort of a, a magical thing, that it takes being a superhero to offer forgiveness. They can leave us feeling guilty and saying things like, well, if the Amish can forgive a man who killed their children, I'm still holding on to a grudge that is so much less serious than that. Then what's wrong with me? Forgiveness is an incredibly difficult choice. It is a conscious decision that we will have to make. And that, I think, is the most important thing we can remember in the beginning of our discussion about forgiveness is that it is a choice. It cannot be compelled or forced on anyone. No one can compel you or make you forgive, not the person who offended you and not the church. No one can guilt or shame you into forgiveness by saying things like, we have to forgive because look how much Jesus forgave others. Yes, Jesus wants us to forgive, but it is an orientation of the heart, and orientations of the heart take work and time and processing. Joseph forgives his brothers after years and years of, of processing what he went through. We have all been wounded and injured by others. We all have offenses to forgive and to be forgiven for. We all need space in our lives to work through those injuries and those wrongs that have been done to us. And no one and no institution can rush us through that process. It is a lot easier for us to live with anger and resentment than it is for us to forgive. Those wrongs that have been done to us can pull us in like that black hole, pulling us further and further in until we cannot escape. It is so easy to not fight it, but to simply live in that place of anger and resentment. I know I can't be the only one who at many times in my life has been lying awake in bed at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, seething about what someone did wrong to me. Sometimes those wrongs were years and years ago. And then I realize that I'm the one lying awake in bed while the other person is probably sawing logs. <laughs> it affects our health and our well-being to not forgive. We are the ones who suffer when we hold on to the wrongs that have been done to us. Forgiveness, in a way, is an act of self-care. 
It's a way of building up our own well-being and our own wholeness. What is good for our health and for our well-being is often the more difficult thing. We know how much hard work it is to be healthy, to eat right, and to exercise when the easier thing, the more fun thing, in my opinion, is to sit on the couch eating junk food, watching movies. Forgiveness requires hard work, but it does lead us to a healthier place in our lives. Forgiveness may never be final. Depending on the nature of your pain, forgiveness may be a moment-by-moment choice. The injury that you experience may be so strong that, that like a black hole, that woundedness may try again and again to pull you back down. You may have to choose forgiveness moment-by-moment. Joseph, who through tear-stained cheeks forgives his brothers in this moment, may have had other moments where he realized that he was still holding on to that anger and that resentment. Maybe he too lay awake in bed at night, two or three o'clock in the morning, thinking about the wrong that his brothers had done and realized he needed to once again have that orientation of forgiveness. Or perhaps there were moments where his brothers were laughing and sharing stories about their father, Jacob, stories he wasn't around for. And he realized, I have to yet again forgive. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation. The story of Joseph and his brothers does result in reconciliation. That is something that we can celebrate with joy. I think the the goal of forgiveness is always to arrive in a place of reconciliation. But that will not always be the case. Forgiving someone does not always mean that we have to reconcile with that person. There are situations in our lives, there are certain injuries that we might experience that I think it's advisable to say that reconciliation is not the best path. Sometimes the best we can offer is forgiving that other person for our own health and well-being, and that is okay. But what forgiveness does mean is that that person doesn't get to define your life anymore. The pain that they cause you doesn't get to define who you are. Forgiveness is an act of self-liberation. It's about allowing ourselves to move forward to be our fullest and most well-loved selves. But you are not defined by the wrong that someone else did to you. Forgiveness does not cancel the injury that was caused, but rather it acknowledges that there was real hurt and there was real pain there. When I was younger, my siblings and I would be mean to each other, as we often were, and we would sometimes say it just with an earshot of my mom, and my mom would hear us and say, you need to apologize to your brother, you need to apologize to your sister. And so the offending party would mumble their apology, I'm sorry. My mom would say, that's not a real apology, try again. And we would say it, and then the, the offended party would be smiling the whole time because they were the, the other person got in trouble. And then we would say, oh, it's okay. My mom always said to us, don't say it's okay. Say I forgive you. I think my mom, who raised four kids, had a deep insight into forgiveness. It's not saying that our injuries are okay, In fact, forgiveness says the opposite. It says, what happened was wrong, it broke me, it hurt me, and I need to forgive you in order to move forward. Some of the wrongs that have been done to us are incredibly wrong. And some of our hesitancy to forgive, I think, is because we feel like when we say we're forgiving somebody, we are saying that what happened was okay. But what happened to Joseph wasn't okay. What happened to Jesus on the cross wasn't okay. What happened at the Amish schoolhouse wasn't okay. The wrongs that are done to us are not okay. 
In choosing forgiveness, we are acknowledging that there was a wrong done, but we rob that wrong of the power to define who we are. The evil done to us that seeks to destroy us, it seeks to to drag us down into cycles of resentment and anger and violence, it seeks to poison us. But forgiveness is an act of defiance against that wrong done to us. When we forgive, we will not be overcome by evil. We will not be poisoned. We will instead choose a better path, one that leads to wholeness and well-being, not only for ourselves, but for the world around us. This final act of Joseph in forgiving his brothers, I think, is a, a fitting end to the book of Genesis. That our family reunion has been incredibly messy and incredibly dysfunctional from time to time. Abraham constantly telling foreign kings that his wife, Sarah, is not his wife, but his sister. And these foreign kings, despite the fact that Sarah is 90 years old, can't resist themselves from bringing Sarah into their harem. Sarah and Abraham abuse and mistreat Hagar. Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah play favorites. Jacob is a trickster and a huckster. Uncle slash father-in-law Laban uses his daughters as pawns in a scheme with his nephew slash son-in-law Jacob. Brothers sell another into slavery. It's been a huge mess. The families of Genesis are incredibly dysfunctional. They make our lives seem so much more normal in comparison. But amidst the mess, in between the trickery, the lying, the deception, and the harm, there are these beautiful moments where God is found. God is found in the cool night air, showing Abraham all the stars of heaven, saying, this is how numerous your descendants will be. This is the scope of my love and my blessings that will flow not only through you, but through all people who call you their ancestor. God, out in the wilderness, finding a marginalized slave named Hagar, and and Hagar being given the only opportunity anyone in the entire Bible is given. Old or New Testament, she gets to name God. And she names God El Roy, the God who sees. The God who sees all people who are in situations like hers. God is found as as Sarah listens from the tent as God appears in uh, in the appearance of three strangers. And she hears beyond all expectation and all possibility that she will give birth to the promised child, Isaac, even though she is 90 years old. And she laughs because who wouldn't laugh at such a preposterous idea? She laughs again as Isaac is placed upon her chest for the first time. The child she thought she would never have, she has a place in God's story. God is found in that strange story of wrestling along the riverbank. God is is found in the, the worst of circumstances, transformed into bread for the whole world. God is found finally in the forgiveness that happens between two brothers, the breaking free of this cycle of injury and pain. The book of Genesis is a lot like the Japanese art of Kintsugi. If you want to bring that up for me, Sandy. I don't know if you've ever heard of Kintsugi before, but it's where broken pottery is repaired and mended together with gold, silver, or platinum. And the cracks are not viewed as something to hide or disguise, but rather they are part of the history and the beauty of what was broken. The cracks, the dysfunction, the hurtful words, and the patterns are not something that we need to be hiding away. They are part of the history and the story of God's people. And it says something about our lives, too. 
Sandy, you can go ahead and take that down for me. As entertaining and as over-the-top as Genesis is at times, our lives are just as messy and just as dysfunctional. The cracks and the brokenness of our lives and of the world around us, they are not meant to be hidden away. Rather, we can make a choice just as Joseph makes a choice through an act of forgiveness to be the bond that holds the broken pieces together. God's love and God's grace hold us together. Amidst all the dysfunction and the mess that we find in our own lives, there is God's love shining out. It's found in every promise given and fulfilled. It's found in every act of justice and love. It's found in every outsider that is included. It's found in every reunion and moment of forgiveness. In all of those moments, God's love, God's grace, God's goodness are shining out and holding together the the broken pieces of our lives. I hope you enjoyed our family reunion. I know that I did. Until we meet them again, we give thanks to God for our ancestors in faith found in the book of Genesis. Amen.